Yeah, so I, uh, I was on a retreat this last two days, uh, Thursday, Friday, with a number of church ministers of all denominations from around Watford and an organization called Christians Across Watford, which I've been on the last three or four years now. And uh, they asked me to teach a short lesson based on this text um, on uh, God's, what we learn about God from this passage. And in studying it, preparing it, and delivering it, and receiving feedback, I thought, there's just some things I'd love to share with us as well uh, I think could be helpful. Because it's really about the bigger picture of who God is and then what that means for us in the world. But it's about God and our theme or our thread or our background, what we're doing this month of January, the beginning of the year, is a focus on God. We aim to be, we wish to be a God-focused church. Frankly, there shouldn't be any other kind, but we can get uh, focused on other things which are important but may not have their substance in God. And it is possible to lose our... Uh, view or a picture or our perspective on, on God. So I think this passage, although ostensibly, when you look at it, it seems to be largely about what we do and what followers of Christ do, and that is true. Actually, there's some very fundamental, deep things about God that are revealed in this passage. And I think it's a good discipline for us to look at practical narrative passages of Scripture like this, where we see disciples in action, but to then ask ourselves the deeper question, What's going on behind the scenes spiritually? What do we learn about God? In what way does God motivate the actions that we're seeing in this passage? And that helps us to have a pure and lasting motivation ourselves as we try to act for God, as we try to live out the values of the kingdom for people around us and together here. If we have a, a, a clearer way of tapping back into, if we know and learn better the disciplines of how to tap back into the godly motivation, it will help us be sustained for the decades that God has put us here on earth and through the good times, <clears throat> the good times and the more difficult times that we face. Some of us are facing now, some of us will face again in the future. Well, all of us, I suspect. And so that's why I wanted to... Um, uh, to have a look at, at this passage today, and we're going to do some discussion together in uh, some small groups here as part of what we're doing uh, here today. So, heaven sent. Let's have a look at our passage here in Luke 10 and verse 1, beginning of verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat whatever is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet, be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, 
it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it would be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. Whoever listens to you, listens to me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. But whoever rejects me, rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. What a fabulous <laughs> passage here, and what an amazing experience it would have been to be there. I'd love to have seen all of that happen. But what we're going to do for now is ask the first, our first question is, from this passage, and I want to encourage us to think about God and God only, not about ourselves, not about even Jesus and the Holy Spirit specifically, but about God. From this passage, who is God? What do we learn about God? His characteristics, if you like, his personality, if that's a thing for God, his abilities, his heart, his motivations, what matters to him. What do we learn about God from this passage? I'm going to give you a couple of minutes to turn to the person next to you or gather with two or three and let's have a little bit of discussion in groups and then we'll come back and see what we've found in about, let's say, three minutes. All right? So having looked at this passage, Bill, turn around. You can find somebody. There's people there. And, uh, and uh, who is God? From this passage, what do you learn about God? Right? Three minutes. Time starting now. What stands out, everybody? What stands out to you as to who is God? From this passage, what do we see? What do we learn? What stands out? Who is God? What stands out to you? Just a little bit of, uh, bit of reaction. Fire some things out. Yes, Stephen. Uh, God is a provider. He said, when you go, I will provide for you. I will provide. Okay, you don't need to worry about what you're going to eat and drink. Okay, he's, oh, he's a provider. Mm -hmm. Very good. Thank you. Yes. Uh, Donnie? And then, uh, when we go, he's coming after us. Because he told them to go to all the places he was about to go himself. Uh, okay, that's Jesus rather than God, but yes. Yeah. Yes, okay, but yeah, by implication. Yes. Okay, yes, okay, yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, he's coming. Yeah. Where we go, he goes. And yeah. he provides our needs, he provides. The harvest is plentiful, when we go and do it, he will bless us. He'll provide. Okay, well, there was a hand over there somewhere. Apparently there was a hand, if I watched it, there was a hand. I saw a hand. Yeah. <laughs> So we thought that uh, we really like our guy is it's almost pragmatic and business-like, a very good business manager looking after his people, but having fun and being boundaries, which is something that obviously we often struggle with. We often sit down in a good way, the way that we often do not know how to boundary. Boundary. Now that's an interesting concept. Mm -hmm. We might explore that more another time. Mm -hmm. Good. Anything else? What else stands out? What? Who is God? Uh, so, okay. 
Yes. Yeah, it's also very uh, direct and honest. Mm -hmm. Directly? Direct and honest. Direct and honest. Excellent. I think you He's not, he's not painting a, a nicer picture than his reality. He's giving them reality, even though it must be scary. Good, honest, direct. Hmm, who is God? Anything else that stands out about God? Yes, Lisa. I think God is really trusted because he says, I've given you authority to trample on snakes, you know. Mm. So he trusts that we can do amazing things. Amazing things. And, and they might use that authority badly. I mean, that's a, that's a high level of trust to just to give that much power and authority to us weak and, um, uh, and, and mistake-ridden human beings. Absolutely. Okay, anything else? Uh, yes? He is the God of the harvest. He owns the harvest. Okay, so he's provider and owner of the harvest itself. That's a great, great point. Okay. Quite a lot here about God. Here's some things I thought about earlier. Um, it's just a list, we're not going to study this now, but just a few things that occurred to me. Um, who is God? He's the one who hears our prayers. And he hears prayers specifically about the harvest, because he says pray about it. He wants the sick healed, it seems to me. Go and heal the sick and proclaim the kingdom. He wants them healed. He makes his kingdom available, someone mentioned that. Um, he persists despite rejection, because he's telling them you're going to be rejected, but keep going. That, don't let that stop you. He desires people to be warned, you know, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, is, a, is an expression of regret. So he's not expressing a desire for judgment, he's expressing a regret, but there, there's a warning there for them, just hopefully they'll heed it. He's consistent in his convictions, no matter the response, nothing changes his direction, nothing changes his standards, his holiness, but also his compassion for people. So he is a consistent person, person, God, deity, uh, character. Um, he is a judge, and he will judge, that's part of who he is. Um, he can be rejected, which means also that he, uh, he allows choice. He's someone that gives us freedom to choose, which is astonishing considering who he is and he's made us. Uh, he shares his joy with his servants. I mean, if, if the servants are rejoicing, um, it must be because they've seen God do great work and it's part of God's joy that they're sharing it. So he is a joyful God who loves to share his joy with his servants, which I rather like. Um, he exceeds expectations. I like the phrase they use when they come back, even the demons submit. As th that was more than they expected. Okay, we'll go and heal a few people and we'll go and uh, proclaim the kingdom. And then they discovered that even demons submitted to them. So he exceeds our expectations. Rather like that. And he, who is he? He writes the names of his servants in heaven. Um, which is a wonderful thing. Um, now, there's more we can talk about. But I just wanted to point out a few things there to say, when we study our Bibles and read our Bibles for ourselves, part of what we're doing is not just finding out what's useful for you and I now, but what am I learning about God? And there's a lot more beneath the surface of many passages than we realize until we start you know, digging in. So to summarize that, who is God? I would say he's the owner of the harvest. As I think Stephen said, he's Lord of the harvest. He owns it. He's the provider of workers who are promised to those who pray. Uh, he's the divine employment agency for the harvest. Uh, he is a listener who listens to prayers. He is a compassionate, uh, he is compassionate 
offers healing, offers the kingdom, offers good news, offers uh, spiritual healing as well as physical. Um, he is a provider of peace um, in his compassion. Uh, he provides peacemakers. God is a peacemaker passion. He is consistent. He will judge. His holiness will not be compromised. Um, and it makes no difference to his standards whether he's accepted or rejected. He consistently continues to be the same. Uh, God is rejectable. Despite his extraordinary love, his patience and his compassion and his generosity, um, he allows himself to be rejected. And we're going to talk a bit more about that in a minute, what that actually means, or some nuance of what that means. And, uh, and he is joyful, as we've uh, already mentioned. So with this in mind, uh, these elements of God either explicitly or implicitly in this passage. The second question is, what is God's experience? So imagine, you have to do some imagining here, in this situation, in this situation. Now this is not everything about God, but at least what we see here. What is God's experience in this? As Jesus sends out those 72, they go out and do what they do, they come back and report. What would you say might be God's experience of that? Use your imagination a bit. So again, a bit of discussion here for a couple of minutes. What is God's experience of what happens in this passage? I suppose you could say, how might he feel about what happens? So, how might he feel? What might his experience be? Um, God's experience here. All right. What, what does God experience through and in what's going on here in this passage? What do you think? Ideas? Uh, so we'd like him God experience here to that of a parent as a children. Parent with children. Yes. As in when you give something to your child or you see your child be happy, that brings you joy as well to see your child be right. happy. So God has sent them out and they come back with reports and they were very excited about the response. You know, some people were very, very were very happy to see them. Even the demons, you know. Mm. And this really fired the disciples up. And so they were happy. Mm. And I think that joy too, you know, God was happy that they were happy. Okay. As a parent, you give your child something and you see their face later. Mm. And then you'll be like very happy as well. Yes. Absolutely. We share it, don't we? Good. Thank you. What else? Anything else we see about God's experience in this passage? Well, he's obviously experienced rejection before, because mm. he's born against it. Yeah, I mean, rejection is... He knows what's going to happen. It's tough to be rejected. Yeah. Right? Mm. Yeah, it's one of the most difficult things. Yeah. Um, well, this also uses knowledge and understanding of us, and his care for us and love for us, but always um, not to um, not to rejoice that the spirits submit to you, because mm. in fact they're really submitting to God, and not then to fall into bad ways or dangerous ways where you can end up becoming prideful and seated and, and go off thinking it's you that's doing it rather than it's him that's doing it. Mm -hmm. So it's that understanding of us and the care of guiding us. Yes, his instructions there prevent us getting bent out of shape and missing God and missing the point and getting our joy in the wrong things. Yes, there's a compassion there, isn't there? So God helps us with that. Good, thank you. Yeah. Anything else? Stands out? Stem? I think the hopefulness of God, of He knows even whole towns were rejected, but yet He still has the hope to say, go there anyway. Right. I think that's a, 
That's a, that's a painful experience, setting yourself up almost for that, mm -hmm. but doing it anyway. Right. So there's pain and hope, pain and hope going that's together. It's a funny combination of hope, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but hope not necessarily expecting a good result. Sure, sure, good. <coughs> I'm going to summarize the, the main things I think I see, which is that most of what God experiences comes under those two headings of either pain or joy. There's the pain of the lostness, to begin with, the lostness of the people. There's the pain of rejection that he experiences, uh, which of course is not just at that time, but is based upon um, millennia of being rejected. Um, but then there's also joy. So there's pain and then there's joy. And I, I think with God, this is really important that we understand, that God understands our pain and our joy. He experiences the kinds of things that we experience. But the question for the moment, and we're going to sort of finish on, is to focus on how does God get from pain to joy? What is the key quality in God that takes him from pain to joy? In other words, he doesn't get stuck in the pain of rejection and the lostness of the world and, and, and the, the victory of, if you like, de demonic powers over humankind whom he loves. What takes him from his pain to his joy? And my, my suggestion is that it's his restraint. It's his restraint that takes him from the pain to the joy. Let me explain what I mean uh, by this uh, a little bit. So, you may remember uh, this week there was a big old moon, right? Um, uh, an eclipse and all that kind of thing. Was it Monday? I think. Um, this picture was taken by Andrew Aguilar, who, as some of you will know, is a bit of a keen astronomer and photographer. Um, the next time is 10 years from now, I think, another one of these. I was walking through the park on my prayer walk early in the morning, the next morning, and the moon was just huge. You know those kind of moons, I mean, some of you may have woken up and seen it, right? And it was pitch black, it was, I don't know, half six in the morning, pitch black out there with this bright, bright, bright moon. So bright, you really couldn't look at it. I mean, it's painful to look at it, it's that bright, and, and uh, I had to sort of have a look and it look away and it killed my night vision, uh, stumbling around in the dark. Um, but as I, as I was aware of it, walking through the park and praying, I couldn't help but reflect on the power of God. Mm. Just the immensity of his power uh, to create a moon like that. And then thinking beyond that to the solar system, to the planets, to the stars, to the billions of stars. Which, you know, when you start actually putting the number of stars or even galaxies that people think that now exist on a screen with enough zeros, you know, there are zeros all over the screen, and you go beyond numbers that you can really imagine. You just can't grasp how many billions there are. And this is God. And the more that, and then you walk through a park thinking about that, and you think, who am I? Why is God interested in me? Yeah. I mean, all that power to do whatever He wants to do with it, and yet here I am. Um, thousands of years after he's revealed himself to humankind, however you exactly date these kinds of things, whether, or whatever, but, and, and certainly it looks like billions of years since he started the whole thing off. Here I am walking through a park, talking to him, and he's interested in listening. Why is that? I mean, it must be, because when you've got great power, there's a temptation to use it, right? In, in, in large quantity, I mean, you just want, you know, get what you want, get what's right, get, get it done. 
because I've got the power. And if you've got limited power, you can't. But if you've got ultimate, complete, and awesome, total power, nothing stands in your way, you can get done what you want to get done right there and there. Why doesn't God do that? Why doesn't God judge? Why doesn't God stop the whole experiment? It's his restraint. See, in this passage, he says, woe to you because of this, woe to you because of that. It'll be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon, and woe to you, Chorazin. Um, but he's, he's urging his disciples to have their own restraint, to say, go to this place, and if they reject you, bear in mind they're rejecting me rather than you, but, but shake the dust off your feet, move on. Don't, it's not your job to, to judge those people or to pass judgment or to condemn. Shake the, the dust as a warning to them and move on. God's restraint. And we talk about God's mercy, we talk about God's patience, and that does, that's all part of this. But I just, as I was studying this passage this last week or so, it's the word restraint that came to my mind as a fresh way to think about this. God restraining the use of his power because of his compassion. And that's what takes him from a place of pain to a place of joy, which is, of course, why we go from a place of pain in darkness and lostness to a place of joy, of being found secure in this new family of God. This is what, uh, what makes it work. So it's something like this. Where God's, <clears throat> God has total power, he's totally pure, and yet he wants peace. Um, the old covenant, you couldn't get into the Holy of Holies, of course, because of his total purity. But he wants peace, he wants connection with humankind. And so in his restraints, rather than passing judgment, he decides to send people to share about his power and his love uh, with his creation, with humankind, and with us. And that, so his restraint means that sharing of his uh, hopes and dreams of love uh, comes about. And so he sends his people to, to gather in the harvest, and thus there is great joy. Those are symbolic fireworks, not death. Uh, there's great joy for the people that have been reached with the good news, and those who go and reach them, and in God's heart, there's joy on joy on joy. It's God's restraint that takes him there. He does not judge yet he is patient because of his restraint. In John 4 verse 35-36 Jesus tells his uh, followers, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper <coughs> may be glad together. The sower and the reaper glad together. God wishes to share his joy with you and me as we work in the harvest field, even though sometimes it's painful. But because of God's love, we persist and we see what God will do. So I think, just not to discuss this for the moment, but this is a question for us to reflect on. What's relevant in this for you? In this passage, as we look at this example of what happened and of the consequences of God's restraints leading to great joy, what's relevant in this for you? I'm going to give you one thing that I felt is relevant for me personally. I think for me one of the things that's relevant from this passage is that the joy that's available is, uh, comes through partnership. You'll see that in the passage Jesus sends them out two by two, which was his pattern, and we see that kind of pattern re repeated in the book of Acts. The partnership seems to be important. In Ecclesiastes, 
it says that two are better than one because they get a, a good return for their labor. Uh, if one falls down, spiritually or physically, I guess, emotionally, whatever, yeah. then the other one can lift them up. We need partnerships. Um, if two lie down together, they'll keep warm. How can one keep warm alone? And this verse, though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. I reckon for the disciples going two by two, to be rejected, they were told by Jesus what to do when they were rejected, but if you're on your own, it's a lot harder to process it. But when, because they were in, in twos and pairs in a partnership, when they were rejected, perhaps one of them was more bothered by the rejection than the other, but they could strengthen each other and keep going. Seems to me for myself, and maybe it's true for us, that we would work better for God if we work more in partnerships. Whether it's as married couples or friends, reaching out to people, praying together, seeking the face of God, learning more about Him, being more deeply connected in our heart, in our, heart, in our spirits, so that we're really genuinely in partnership in the gospel. That's something that, that seems to me to be important here. If God thought it was important for them, I'm guessing it's important for us. And I think it's important, and I have friends, and we all have friends, but there's a difference between a friend and a partner. And the difference between having friends in church and having partners in the gospel. Those two things aren't necessarily the same, and they're not automatic. So I'm thinking to myself, I'd like to offer it to all of us to think for ourselves whether we really have partnerships and what it would mean to have a partner in the gospel uh, in the work that we do for God this year. So, um, on your sheets, two other questions are there, which is uh, to ask what are the revealed characteristics of God challenge you the most, and which of the revealed characteristics of God inspire you the most. Maybe that's a personal Bible study, some devotional time, some prayer time to pray over those things, and the other thoughts that are on the <coughs> sheet there that might help us. So we're going to finish by taking communion together, and reflecting on, on all this and what it means for us in terms of what Jesus did for us on the cross. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, so let's pray together. <coughs> Father, we ask you to open our hearts to, to share in your pain and to share in your joy. <coughs> Father, you we are we are very grateful that you did not move from the pain of rejection to an instant judgment. We're very grateful that you've been patient with humankind and very patient with us. We pray, Father, that as we take this bread and wine, that it will strengthen our gratitude for your restraint. Even this last few days, Father, we, we know that we haven't always lived up to what it means to follow Jesus. And we, Father, we know and trust in your grace. But, Father, we pray that we never take it for granted and that we have a deep gratitude for your love for us. Thank you for your compassion. Thank you for sending out workers into the harvest field. Thank you that some others went two by two so that we could be here today. And, Father, just it is amazing to think that people have been going out two by two for 2,000 years. And, and doing what these first disciples did. Father, help us to have the same, same connection with your heart that they have, to reach out to others. And Father, we, we pray that we'll be always motivated by your joy, your heart, not just for our, our benefit to do this, but 
but so that it brings you glory. You deserve it, Father. We pray that your, your joy will be ours, and we thank you that we can experience it because we have our sins forgiven. Thank you for the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, that he broke his body and shed his blood so that we can enjoy this. We pray that as we take this bread and wine, the symbols of his body and blood, that, that our gratitude will be refreshed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Let's pass the bread and wine.